let me add my happy Mother's Day wishes to all the moms here. It is a thankless job. I heard someone say, motherhood is drawing on strengths you didn't know you have to, de fears, to deal with fears you didn't know existed. And I think that's really true. I was thinking about the passage we have today. I was thinking, we really need to pick a better passage for Mother's Day. And so I was thinking, what passage out of James could we pick? And I was thinking, well, we probably should have kicked it off with James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, mothers, when you meet with trials of various kinds, if I could have a slide, numerous times a day, multiple times an hour in the most creatively destructive ways to the point where you don't have 60 seconds to close the bathroom door, and that wouldn't be an exact translation, but it'd be more of a paraphrase. So, um, happy Mother's Day, and let's go ahead and launch into James. You've never had that in your house, right? Okay. Um, so, we've been studying the book of James as a church family, um, and as we've studied, it's kind of like climbing a mountain, and first it started out relatively kind of flat terrain, and then it got steeper and steeper, and, and finally we're kind of like going from handhold to handhold, you know, easy, brisk walk to now we're putting ropes up and things like that. And, and so as we start on verse 21, I want to, which is really comes to a pivot point, I want to do a little bit of a review on some of the stuff we've, we've uh, encountered on our climb. So Don started this whole thing off um, by reminding us to count it all joy, I think it said brothers, not mothers, when you face trials, and we learn that real faith knows that trials are God's tools to shape our lives for good. Then Eric came in, talked about temptation, and we learned that God's perfect gift changes our perspective. And then last week, Greg talked about anger and its nemesis um, uh, meekness, and we learned that sinful anger is mastered through meekness and power. So I'm going to read our verse. First, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read our verse, and we're going to launch into James 1, uh, verse 21. So pray with me. Lord, you have something new and challenging and exciting to teach us this morning. We need your Spirit to open our eyes and to make your Word come alive in our hearts. We ask that you would give us faith and attentiveness and insight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So open your Bibles to James chapter 1 or your Bible app where you can read behind me, verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, always a good way to start Mother's Day, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently in, a, in his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but, for, uh, but forgets to be a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all his doing. So we're going to tackle this with four, uh, in four different points. Point number one, therefore, in this passage, it starts with therefore, it signals a transition in the letter of James. Point two, God is calling us from one way of life to another. Point three, what does it mean to be doers of the word? And number four, we're going to end up with application and conclusion. So therefore signals a transition. When I was in fourth grade, um, 
I took a field trip to Washington, D.C., and uh, a lot of my friends wanted to go to the Air and Space Museum. They wanted to see all the aircraft that hangs from the roof and the spacecraft, and they thought that was the cool thing. Kind of the other half wanted to go to the Museum of Natural History. When you walk in, there's this giant elephant, and they wanted to see all the elephants and the dinosaurs and all the things like that. I was a little different. I wanted to go and see the National Archives, and I wanted to see all those old documents that had such an important part of our history. So I'm going to give you a quick little quiz. One of the documents I wanted to see, I'm going to give you the name of the author, and I want to see if you can tell me which document it is. I see some of you are really interested, and some of you heard the word history and kind of glazed over, so stick with me here. Okay, so the writer of this document, his name was Timothy Matlack. Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, so Timothy Matlack was the clerk of the Pennsylvania State House, and he was asked by the Continental Congress to have the Declaration of Independence engrossed, which means they take a big sheet of paper in a very legible handwriting. He was supposed to write out the Declaration of Independence and leave a big space at the bottom for, for signatures. So we're, we're all very comfortable with the early passages of the Declaration of Independence that I think maybe we should, we should call it the therefore of independence. We're familiar with these passages because it starts with, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right, we all heard those. However, we may have missed or we may never have read the most important sentence in that document. It's the lead sentence to the last paragraph. Anybody want to jump up and recite it? One more chance. Go on, go on, go on. Okay, flash it up if it ended up already. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, do in the name and the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of ought right to be free and independent states. There are 1,333 words in the Declaration of Independence. It takes almost 1,200 of them to get to that sentence. That's the one that declares our independence. Everything before it is the why. Because, because, because. Because the king didn't do that. Because the king did this. Because the king won't do this. We're declaring our independence. Everything before that was the why. That's why I think we should call it the therefore of independence. Therefore signals a transition. It signals a transition for our country. We're transitioning from a colony, we're transitioning to a country. And in this passage in James, we're transitioning. And it's the first signal of that transition is the word therefore. Our passage starts with that daunted therefore. James is saying, in the light of the first 20 verses, we therefore will be making a major change. The second indication of the transition is the text itself. James is using therefore as a lever, and the fulcrum is our relationship with God. Who are these people James is talking to? James is writing to believers. He's writing to those of us who are followers of Christ. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Eleven times in the first 19 verses, it references that he's speaking to the community of faith. James is writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ and talking to the family of God, and he's telling us about a transition. The transition is from how we have been living to how we should live. 
Point two, God is calling us from one way of life to another. What is the transition James alerts us to? With this therefore? The key of the translation, in the, of the transition, is hidden in the passage right after the therefore. Therefore, put away. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word that is able to save your souls. So the transition is putting away one thing and it's receiving another. The transition is from putting away all filthiness and wickedness of our old life and replacing it with God's word. The transition that James is calling us is to stop following our own selfishness and sinfulness and to start following what, God, what James calls the implanted word. That's the word that God has sown into our hearts as believers. The transition is, lifting, living the me- is leaving the mess that we were in and accepting God's word. From the putrid to the pure, from the hellbound to the holy, from the self-centered to the savior-centered. The Greek word for this leaving is apothmitnoi, and it's found four times in the New Testament. It means to put aside, to renounce. Cross-current students, you'll remember, Todd preached on this when he referenced uh, uh, Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we've been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. The NASB calls it rid ourselves. The Berean Study Bible says, let's throw it off. It's old. It's not pleasant. So you're going to hear a lot of references this morning about my new grandson. You hold your applause. Thank you. I knew a little bit of coaching. We'd be good. Okay. Um, He is absolutely adorable, but he can fill some diapers. So at my son's house, there are two kinds of diapers. There's the empty ones, and there's the full ones. We like to keep the empty ones around. The full ones, we apothmanoi. We want to throw those off. We want to set those aside. As a matter of fact, it's Sunday, so we typically use that apothmanoi word around my house on Sunday evenings a lot. It's kind of like, remember, tomorrow's trash day. Have you apothmanoid all the trash out of the house? And we're like, yep, we've done that. So we want to rid ourselves. We want to throw off that old life, that old thinking, those old desires. And we want to make room for something new, something better. The passage in James goes on to say, to receive with meekness the implanted word able to save our souls. We're going to take those three nuggets one at a time, but we're going to take them out of order. First, James calls God's word the implanted word. The implanted word thus is inside us and we're changed. It's implanted in us by the great physician. And we're changed because it informs the way we think, how we evaluate our thoughts, our desires, our emotions. The implanted word is a game changer. Some of you know, about six months ago, I had a heart procedure um, that was a game changer for me. And the implanted word in that same way regulates us, keeps us going. It informs all that we do and think. It's a game changer because it's able to save our souls. But George, 
I'm, I'm saved. James is talking to a, an audience who is saved. Well, this is not the future tense, why will save your souls. This is current right now. Abel, I am, God is saving our souls right now as we speak. Okay, confused? I understand. The Apostle Paul understood the active nature of God's Word in his introduction to the book of Romans. And he said three interesting things. Romans 1.1, he said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. In Romans 1.7, he said, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's his audience. 1.15, Romans 1.15, he said, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So let me, let me take that, paraphrase it, and consolidate it. I, Paul, want to preach the gospel to you believers. This is really important. Paul recognized the gospel is not a lifetime membership that we purchase and we never have to reference again. The gospel is an active force in our lives, and we need to remember it every single day. Moving on, James wants us to receive with meekness the implanted word. Last week, Greg did an excellent job teaching meekness is not weakness. Meekness is gentleness. Meekness is humility. Meekness is power under control. Why do we handle God's word with humility and gentleness? There are two reasons. There are many reasons, but two we're going to talk about. Hebrews 4 tells us that God's word is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word's not going to break. It won't, but we might. It's because of its power. It's because of its author. It's because it's living and active in our hearts that we have to treat God's word with the utmost respect. The first reason we handle God's word with care is because it's daunting and powerful and should strike us with awe. And if we use it incorrectly, it can create damage. The second reason we handle it with humility and meekness is because we need it. We need, to, we, we need to read it, we need to listen to it, we need to believe it. We need it like we need air. We need God's Word like a glass of cold water on a hot day. We humbly and meekly approach God's Word because we need it. So what does it mean to be doers of the Word? Be doers of the Word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Three phrases linked together to make a sentence. If we take the first two, we see that James is implying that hearing the word isn't simply obeying the word. If you do hear it and you don't obey, you're self-deceived. We're missing something. There must be something more. What is that something more that we're missing? Well, let's keep reading. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, but forgets, uh, uh, a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all his doing. What is that something more that we seem to be missing? The passage tells us that the fault doesn't lie in the mirror. The passage calls the mirror the perfect law and immediately follows that by calling it the law of liberty. James has placed a clue here in plain sight. 
The law is from the perfect God who sent the perfect sacrifice in the form of the perfect lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That sacrifice brought us liberty, freedom from sin. Okay, so I need you to stay with me now. This doing the word, this Christian obedience is a gospel doing. It's not a call to put aside the gospel. Hey, we spent the first 20 verses. Now we're ready. We can, we can put that away, and now we, we move on. That's not what he's calling it to do. He's saying, let's not put aside the gospel. Let's live out the gospel. We don't do stuff so that God will love us. We do stuff because God has loved us. We don't do stuff to earn God's favor. We do stuff because of all the things that God's already done for us. This is what James is saying. It's not to put aside the gospel and get to work. James is saying the exact opposite. Here's the gospel. Let's work because of it. Let's live it out. So what would it mean if we took that passage, passage to heart? How would our lives change if we lived like we were no longer si slaves to sin? If we lived like we were not abandoned, but that we were adopted? If we weren't anxious about anything, but in all things we presented a request to God, how different would our lives be like? Let me read this passage to you. I just want you to just listen to the words and think about this is Jesus. Think about him just, just speaking to you. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add one single hour to your life? How different would our lives look if we lived like that every day? How different would our thoughts of our heart be if we lived that way from our core outward? What does it mean to be doers of the word? It's like looking in that mirror and seeing us as we truly are, sinners, but redeemed, fully accepted members of God's family. Jesus taught us how this works <clears throat> in Luke chapter 7. Jesus was invited to a dinner party. During the party, he was approached by a woman of questionable reputation. She came up behind him where he was reclining to eat, and she washed his feet with her tears, and then she dried them with her hair. Then she emptied an expensive perfume over his feet. The invited guests got offended over this. Not that this disreputable woman had crashed their dignified party, but that Jesus was not distancing himself from her. So let me kind of set the stage for this play. You have the cool, you have the uncool, and you have Jesus. So the cool are wealthy, they have the best clothes, they're invited to all those important parties. The uncool fall short, they know they fall short, they carry shame, they're uncool, they're just uncool. The cool must maintain this picture, this image of superiority. The uncool, well, she's abandoned that. She's given up that facade. 
The cool and the uncool are there, but the spotlight is on Jesus. The people are asking, Jesus, what are you going to do? Now stay with me because this is really pivotal. This is that fulcrum we talked about. What does Jesus do? Jesus tells a story of a certain moneylender. Notice the perspective Jesus takes. He doesn't tell the story of two debtors. He tells the story of one moneylender. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them loved him more? Really simple story. 33 words, 35 words. Simple, simple story. In this story, we have three parties. Hmm, sounds familiar. The moneylender, to whom we are all in debt. That's God. Secondly, we have the folks who need to borrow only a little money. They're cool because they only have little issues. Finally, we have the folks who need to borrow a lot. They have big problems, they have crippling debt, and they know it. But neither could repay. And that's the gospel. None of us can repay our debt. Jesus explains his acceptance of this woman by sharing the gospel. Jesus reminds the partygoers of what their response should be by reminding them of the goodness of God. Jesus ends the party by, by tying the story back to the woman at his feet and the rude party host, for she loved much but who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus ties together the teaching with the situations he in with the phrase, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus ties the woman weeping at his feet and the hypocrite standing over him with the statement, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The woman never read the New Testament. She came face to face with the word become flesh. She looked deeply into that mirror, and she saw herself accurately, and she was utterly undone. So what just happened? There's a dinner party thrown for Jesus, thrown in Jesus' honor. They wanted to meet him. So far, so good. This woman who crashes a party and falls at his feet, that's what meek acceptance looks like. She repents. She serves she clings, she holds on to Jesus. That's what being a doer of God's word, word looks like. That's faith in action. There's another person at the dinner, the host. He does not let the word judge him. He's decided that he's going to judge the word. He has forgotten what he saw in the mirror. So let's set, reset where we are. Uh, uh, point one, verse 21, sees there's a, there's a therefore is a signal of a change, a transition in our letter to James. Point two, we transition because God is calling us from one way of life to another. Point three, we've learned what it means to be a gospel-informed doer of the word. Now let's end with some conclusions and applications. How do we put this message into action? Well, we've got some great models to follow. And I propose we do it three different ways. Number one, 
Let's get active. He calls us, James calls us to be a doer. So let's look at the church calendar. Invite a friend to first Sunday food truck. Did I get that right? On the first Sundays, we have a food truck here. Invite them to that. Okay? Invite someone to a men's breakfast. It's relaxed. It's fun. The food's really good. Start inviting people to our church. Invite neighbors to a ladies' event. Get active and volunteer. Sunday school ministry, greeters, go team. How about serving a momentum? Youth conference. If you're, if you're an adrenaline addict, that's a great place to go. Each year, we have numerous short-term missions, and we're just talking about some short-term missions we have right here in the church. Be bold. Reach out. How about you go to our website and find a small group? When you attend, you're not only serving, but you're also being served. The focus of our groups are twofold. It's spiritual growth and it's fellowship. Now, I know my natural self, after, the, after dinner's over, the only thing I want to get into a drive to is, is my recliner. But I know that if I go to my small group, my soul will be fed. And I also know that God's going to use me to serve other people there. God made us to learn, live in community. So please, nod your heads as I have a commercial for small groups. Okay. Number two. Number one, get active. Number two. Our passage said, receive with meekness the implanted word. That means to read God's word, engage with God's word, memorize it, meditate it, recite it, study it, believe it. It seems we want to major on the counterfeit and not on the authentic because we seem to know the, the, we don't know the authentic as well as we should. Many of us have, have used these quotes before. The lamb will lie down with the lion. Pride cometh before a fall. Money is the root of all evil. The Lord works in mysterious ways. The problem is, none of those are in the Bible. A fool and his money will soon be parted may often be true, but it's not holy scripture. So let me bring you back to why we want to read and memorize and study God's word. It's not so that we can quote it better, but it's so that we know it and we can live it out and we can be doers of that word. The Apostle Paul understood the importance of our being forever students of the gospel. So Paul wrote this instruction to a very troubled church in Corinth. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, by which you stand, by which you are being saved actively, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. We need to read and study God's word. We need to understand and refresh ourselves in the gospel so we know what it really says, what it really means, and we can live it out. We read it, we hear it, we receive it, we stand on it so that we believe it and we do it. God really does love you. Walk in that joy. God is giving you all that you need. Be thankful for what you have. God has placed people in your path. Love them and serve them. If you belong to God, you're never alone, ever. You are not worthless. God has a call, a purpose for your life, not because of you, but because it's all about him. His purpose is something far greater than yourself. He's letting you, more than that, he's calling you by name to be part of his eternal plan because he loves you. Did I mention that I have a new grandchild? Okay, just checking. So he cries. He poops and he sleeps. That is his net addition to the family. 
He's expensive. So, but we, we want to go see him. We want to hold him. We want to take him everywhere. Why? All he does is eats, poops, and sleeps. That was a mom laughing early. She knew that was coming. Yeah. Because she's been late night thinking, why am I doing this again? Why do we want to see him? Because we love him. Because we love him. That's it. And you know, Jesus loves us more than that. Jesus loves So I, I was having this um, conversation with my wife. And uh, before the baby came, this grandchild that I don't know. Have I told you I just had a grandchild? Okay. Before, before he arrived, I was having this conversation with my wife, and I said, um, let's, let's play a game. Let's pretend that sort of in God's economy, we were only allowed to have this number of grandchildren, and we've got one coming, so we're going to have to give one up. Which one would you give up? <laughs> she, yeah, she didn't laugh. Um, so I, I looked at her face, and I, I thought, okay, I can tell. So I, I tried to, uh, you know, set her fears aside. I said, it's okay if we have different answers. <laughs> that game didn't go as well as I had originally thought it would. Um, I, don't, I don't think we finished that game, as a matter of fact. But we're laughing. Why are we laughing? Because it's absurd, right? Well, Jesus essentially said the same thing, right? Jesus said, I had a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray. I'm not, well, I'm batting 99, right? He said, I'd go find him. Jesus, before he was arrested, looked out over Jerusalem. Before he was arrested, tried, whipped, and crucified, looked out over Jerusalem. And this is what he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you like children together as hens gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. What did Jesus just say? You rebel against me, you reject me, you kill my messengers, and I want to draw you in and hug you. That's the message of Scripture. I want to be in that message. I want to be studying that word. It's not about us or our performance. It's about God's love. It's about his promise, his commitment, his glory, his patience, his character. And it's about the love that he's placed on you. Now, the last several mi minutes, maybe most of the message, have not been a balanced message. We don't have time to fully develop every point. There's a lot that has to go unsaid, like, God's love is not a license to sin or live selfishly. God's patience is not liber liberty to continue to reject him. God's grace and kindness is not a free pass. We take advantage of that at our peril. God's love should motivate us to draw near, not test its limits. Let me rephrase that. God's love should motivate us to draw near, not test his limits. God's grace to us, um, God's grace to us in our sin is no more license to sin than his call to obey means that we have to earn his love. Which brings us to one final application. Number one, get active. Number two, dive into God's word. Number three, a little bit different, 
be a party crasher. Okay, what do I mean by that? Earlier I told that story from Luke 7 about a woman who walked into the dinner party, which she had not been invited. <clears throat> she was a party crasher. Jesus literally and figuratively saved her from a dung heap. She was so undone by that fact that Jesus had loved her, that Jesus had lifted her, that Jesus had saved her from such a great debt that she loved much. No door was going to be a barrier to keep her from her Savior. There was going to be no barriers that would keep her from her Redeemer. Because of what Jesus had done for her, she became a party crasher. Don't let anything, don't let anything keep you from living in the joy of your relationship with Christ. No fear, no rejection, no poverty, no past sin, because what Jesus has done for you, be a party crasher. Do you remember um, uh, Easter, Pastor Don preached on the resurrection? All good there, right? So far, so good? Well, it was surprising that he didn't preach on Jesus' resurrection. He preached on Lazarus' resurrection. Remember the story that Don told? It went something like this. Lazarus got sick. Jesus waited two days for Lazarus to die. And then he went to the party. Roughly worded. For those of you not tracking, um, it was, it was Lazarus' funeral. Jesus arrived invited. He cried with the family, and then he went out to the family burial site, and he did something really, really weird. Picture yourself at a cemetery, and some guy is standing over a gravesite, and he shouts, Lazarus, come out! What would you do? <laughs> I'm thinking... Martha, get behind me. Let's head for the car. And what was going on? He doesn't look safe. Long hair, robes. I know I'm going to that. But something happened in that tomb. First, Lazarus heard his name. Then he heard a command come out. And Lazarus became the first party crasher at his own funeral. Jesus was invited to that party. The family was throwing the party. The community was invited to the party. The only person who didn't get an invitation to the party was Lazarus. Jesus, the Son of God, said, Lazarus, what happened at that moment? Lazarus came alive. He was raised from the dead when he heard Jesus call his name. But that's not the whole story. Lazarus is alive, but he's still in the tomb. Now, stay with me. Don't drift. There are two really important things we need to understand. What did Jesus say? Lazarus. And Lazarus' head pops up. That's the first thing. The second thing is, Jesus said, come out. It's a command. Lazarus is a hearer of God's word. He now needs to become a doer of God's word. God calls us, we come alive. But we're still in the same circumstances. We're still in our tomb. Our tomb is safe. Our tomb is familiar. Our tomb is comfortable. There's no risk if you stay in that tomb. Now, I'm going to say this as carefully as I can, but that tomb is for the dead, and I'm not dead anymore. I'm going to be a little metaphorical here, but too many of us, too many of us have received new life from Jesus and never ventured past that stone that's been rolled away. But not so for Lazarus. He became our model party crasher. He shows us it's never too late 
to go be a party crasher. The woman with the perfume teaches us that there's no sin too great to, to, keep, her from, to keep her from Jesus and crashing that party. Because what Jesus has done for us, be a party crasher. Because God is calling you by name, be a party crasher. Because you just can't stay in your tomb, be a party crasher. Let me summarize. Number one, get active. Number two, engage with God's Word. Number three, be bold. Become a party crasher. and call the band up. We started t this whole conversation by talking about the Declaration of Independence. <clears throat> the 4th of July is just 54 days away, and I will celebrate what we call Independence Day. I'll think about that declaration that I saw when I was in fourth grade um, that gave this country liberty. But there is a liberty not bounded by this country's borders. There is a freedom that doesn't reach its limits with the end of our lives. There is a perfect law, a law of liberty, that cannot be defeated by any tomb. Not a temporary liberty purchased by the blood of patriots, but an eternal liberty purchased by the Son of God. Therefore, therefore, go out and be, live as doers of the word. There's a song we sing here called Glorious Day. I know it much better by the, by the lyrics than I do by the title. So let me read a, some of the lyrics. I was breathing, but not alive. All my failures I tried to hide. It was my tomb till I met you. You called my name. Okay. We'll put the words up anyway. So I'm thinking that we end here with that song. I'm suggesting that we sing that song and we think of three people. We think of that woman who crashed the dinner party. All the failures that she tried to hide, it was her tomb till she met Jesus. Then we think of Lazarus, who crashed his own funeral. Jesus called his name, and he ran out of that tomb. The last person I want you to think about is you. What failures are you trying to hide? What shame is keeping you in your tomb? You have a Savior who's calling you out by name, who hung on the cross for you, who came out of the tomb first for you. Let's worship God with that in mind.